Heritage Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. First of all, on the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white. That's General Mark Milley, America's top military officer, defending the teaching of critical race theory to Army cadets at West Point. Milley's remarks come on the heels of Admiral Michael Gilday placing Abram X. Kendi's 2019 book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, on the Navy's reading list. Here's an exchange between Gilday and Congressman Jim Banks in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Kendi's book states that capitalism is essentially racist. And Kendi is clear that racism must be eliminated. So yes or no? Do you personally consider advocating for the destruction of American capitalism to be extremist? Here's what I know, Congressman. So yes There's or no racism question, Admiral. in the United States Navy. Admiral, you I recommended every sailor in the United States Navy read this book. So yes or no question. I'm not forcing anybody to read the book. It's on a recommended reading list. Admiral, did you read the book? I did. Critical race theory makes race the prism through which all aspects of American life are viewed. It categorizes individuals into groups of oppressors and victims. And it's a philosophy that's infecting everything from politics to education, the workplace, and now the military. Our guest today says that success in combat depends on cohesion and competence, and that critical race theory would destroy that. What would our military be like if Marines were taught to assess their fellow Marines' trustworthiness or capability based on the color of their skin? Dakota Wood served America for two decades in the United States Marine Corps and is a senior research fellow for defense programs. Our conversation after this short break. I'm Zach Smith. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you find your podcasts. It's SCOTUS 101. I joined, uh, came out of the Naval Academy in 1985, which seems like forever ago, uh, and then it was commissioned in the Marine Corps, and I served uh, 20 years in the Marines from 1985 to 2005. For me, the organizations I was with, the first one was a mixture of men and women. It was a, it was a truck unit uh, that you would transport people and gear and supplies and all that stuff. And then I was reassigned a year later to an infantry battalion, which was all male, uh, and uh, again, this motor transport, you know, the truck uh, a component to an infantry battalion. And uh, so it gives you exposure to young men and women 
who have joined the military, in my case, the Marine Corps, uh, for a variety of reasons, but they came from all over the country. And so it's a wonderful introduction, uh, especially a kid from northeastern Oklahoma at the time, you know, where I went to high school, uh, that there is something bigger <laughs> than the rural areas. My high school was, you know, the graduated class was 63 people, right? Wow. And, uh, and so yeah, I'm not saying it was completely homogenous, you know, all the same sort of folks, but, you know, there was a certain culture with that. And so joining the military as a young officer, you're just exposed to much bigger things and broader perspectives and different sorts of people. So you'd say it's a diverse group of Marines that you served with? Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, you know, especially in that infantry battalion uh, there. And within that group in particular, uh, you know, my maintenance chief, uh, staff sergeant, probably been in about 12, 13 years or so, was from American Samoa. Uh, so you talk about different. I mean, this is a completely different childhood, a different environment, uh, personal habits, you know, speech patterns, all those sorts of things. My operations chief was African-American. He come from a completely different part of the world, you know, in the United States as opposed to the South Pacific. Uh, you know, different background, different personal history, you know, certainly different skin color, that kind of stuff. Um, and the more junior listed side, we had kids that had come out of Texas and New Jersey and you know, New York and California. And so you can imagine and a diverse array of you know, musical tastes and, you know, what they ate during their lunch break and, uh, you know, the humor and the whole bit. But, but what really brought everybody together, regardless of their religious affiliation, you know, their beliefs, their home life, uh, the economic background they came from, uh, their neighborhoods, you know, their own personal experiences in schools. I mean, all those things, right, which are extraordinarily diverse, is that in joining the military, they all go through the same training. You know, they either went through uh, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island in South Carolina, or in San Diego, California. You know, it's either eastern part of the country or western part of the country. But it's the same uniform, same kind of drill instructors yelling at you, you know, the same, hey, you got to climb the wall or the obstacle course or, you know, fire your rifle at the rifle range in a certain way. So there were certain standards that had to be met. And if you had made it through boot camp or basic training, <clears throat> earn an eagle globe and anchor, uh, get assigned to the unit, uh, you know, these common shared experiences. You're assigned to the same unit. Everybody can either drive the vehicle or they can't. You can, you know, perform the maintenance function or you can't. You know, you're cleaning up at the end of the workday. You're getting ready to load up the ship and sail off to Okinawa, Japan. You know, those sorts of things that, that, that we did. And so in spite of the diverse uh, backgrounds, everybody, there was a unifying principle in joining the Marine Corps, meeting standard, getting the job done. And if you didn't do that, it didn't matter where you came from or what you looked like, you weren't getting the job done and you were going to be taking the task you know, for that. But uh, uh, this diverse collection of Americans were unified in purpose and unit and you know, experiences. And it was I thought it was just a wonderful representation of what America has come to represent, you know, going from small to large, right? You know, the detail kind of tactical example really representing what America represents to the rest of the world. And isn't it that way by design? It is. You know, you're recruited and, uh, you know, as a new enlisted member, you're taking a particular type of oath. An officer has slightly different wording, but you're you know, pledging allegiance uh, uh, to the Constitution of the United States. You're serving the same country. Uh, you know, you're there to take orders and do the best you can to keep America safe from enemies. 
uh, you know, abroad. Uh, you often work or live in fairly uh, you know, difficult conditions. Uh, certainly, when you deploy to combat, there's a lot of hazard that goes along with that. But even in peacetime stuff, you know, there's some long work days. And, and the expectations are the same for everyone, right? So it's you believe in what you're doing. You know, maybe you join for different reasons. Uh, but once you're uh, in this this uh, melting pot, you know, this commonly understood and appreciated performance-based organization that expects high output, you know, the standards are very high. If you're meeting those standards, how can you argue with that, right? Uh, different personalities, but you're all getting the job done. So, there, again, it was a unifying sort of thing where you could look to the left or the right, uh, same eagle globe and anchor, same uniform, <laughs> You know, same rank on the collar, you know, corporal, lance corporal, captain, whatever that might have been, you know, the differences. But everybody had their place in that organization. You were expected to measure up with that. And so, uh, I don't know, you know, in combat, you get wounded. Uh, what do you care, uh, the skin color, the ethnicity, the religious beliefs of the, of the medic, you know, or the corpsman who's rendering assistance? So I asked you these questions, and we're getting to this point because you wrote— you wrote that critical race theory would destroy the military. How would it do that? By definition, you are focusing via critical race theory uh, on uh, unique characteristics that differentiate people one from another. And uh, as CRT or critical race theory has been described in the news you know, for the last you know, couple of months, I guess, uh, if not longer, um, that there are classes of people that are constantly in competition, right? That uh, whites are inherently oppressors, that the Constitution was constructed in a way that would formalize racial oppression you know, via slavery or whatever that might be, that there are oppressed peoples. In this case, it would be blacks that are perpetually uh, oppressed, but that could also apply to uh, Asians that come in or Hispanics or Latinos, uh, perhaps more importantly, or maybe it's uh, women versus men. So it's this division of oppressed and oppressors uh, and that people are in particular positions because of their race, right? That you have a position of prominence because you're white or because you're black and you were elevated to that position for you know, tokenism or something along those lines. In other words, you didn't get there by merit you know, because you were capable or work hard or develop the skills, you know, earn that right. You were only in that position because of your race or your ethnicity. So in a military organization, if I have uh, Latinos and Samoans and blacks and whites and, you know, city kids and country kids and all that stuff. Are they now supposed to look at each other through this lens, right, of, of superficial characteristics as opposed to appreciating I've got a Marine to my right and a Marine to my left and behind me and in front of me that I'm supporting or being supported by? Uh, or do I say, oh, you're the white guy, you know, or you're the black guy, or you're the Latino woman or something like that, and I view you through that lens, I mean, that can only be disruptive. I mean, it, it breaks down this unity of purpose and unity of identity. You know, the whole point of pushing everybody through the same basic training is that everybody appreciates you've had the same experience, you've met the same standards, same expectations, you know, have been put upon you. Uh, apparently, all that is meaningless 
you know, I should only look at you because you're um, a female or a white or a black or, you know, whatever that might be. And that's how you're defined, right? I mean, it's the antithesis of, you know, out of many, one, right? E pluribus unum, right? It's the antithesis of a melting pot, of, of, of assuming a common identity for a common purpose. So if you take that and, and we say that it, this is going to break the military, with a broken military, what do we have? Well, not a very good defensive posture, that's for sure. Uh, you know, when you get in uh, to, what, you know, again, a combat situation be the ultimate expression of this. You know, I've deployed to a, you know, a few different war zones. But um, when you're in the thick of things, the last thing you need to have in the back of your mind is, can I trust the person from whom I ex- I'm expecting support? Or if somebody calls for support, do I hesitate and assess first, uh, well, what is that person's race? You know, where did that person come from? You know, they don't like rural kids and country music, so maybe I don't respond uh, to, you know, a fellow Marine who came from an urban environment and listens to a different type of music, right? Uh, So this hesitancy, this questioning uh, purpose. Uh, So let's say there's uh, a black in a platoon and he's got a white platoon leader and the white platoon leader orders the individual to rush the machine gun nest, you know, from the enemy. Well, am I ordering that person because they're black and I don't like them? Or am I ordering that person because they are the most capable person in the platoon and they are more likely because of their skill set and mentality and all this other sort of thing to actually accomplish the mission, right? So when we introduce questions and these ambiguities and these frictions, it breaks down the coherence of the unit. You know, it breaks down the discipline to either give an order or to receive an order. Should I not order that person to do this because it might be interpreted that I am selectively, you know, uh, conveying favor, right? Or uh, putting this person in danger based on the differences between my background and the other person's background, you know, or the skin color and stuff. So these uh, critical race theory and similar sorts of identity politics things introduced into a military environment degrade that trust relationship. And I think it upends the whole idea of appreciating this commonality of experience, you know, and duty and uh, obligation and mutual responsibility and mutual respect right? That you achieved your position or hold a position or do a job because of your capabilities, you know, not because your gender or your race or your religious identity or something along those lines, right? So again, it's the opposite. It, it, it destroys the inherent discipline and unity and commonality that you want military units to have in order to be effective in the most high-stress situations that you can imagine. I want to take a second to flip this on its head a little bit. I try and do this every episode. As you're talking about this to me, it all sounds very clear as to why this is a bad idea. But obviously, someone thinks it's a good idea. Can you shed any light onto that perspective? Uh, Well, I think that there are things that we can indulge in and imagine uh, in purely academic or theoretical situations, right? So I can imagine a perfect world where countries only interact in terms of trade and shared ideas and ideals and values and those sorts of things, right? The reality of the world is a bit different, 
right? You could have a megalomaniac as a leader or some kind of an oppressive regime or the Communist Party, you know, ruling out of Beijing or something like that. And regardless of um, Western traditions or values or respect for sovereignty, they might invade, right, or take or try to impose their will. Well, why would somebody do that? Well, it's the nature of people, you know, regimes or competition. So it's an example of the ideal versus the reality. So in academia, we can de- deconstruct you know, Western ideas of literature or art. Uh, and perhaps that's an interesting intellectual exercise, you know, to always question and, well, maybe the artist represented this, or maybe, um, you know, differences between the races manifest in a particular way. Or if you look at the ideal encapsulated in the U.S. Constitution, right? Uh, The ideal in that and what we're always striving forward to. And then you look at historical incidents, you know, the, the Civil War was supposed to have done away with slavery. And yet, what did we see right in the immediate aftermath? There were parts of the South in particular, you know, that didn't want to uh, let go of that. You know, we saw a lot of racial upheaval in the 20s and 30s and the 50s. I mean, it's just it's been an issue, right? We've seen uh, huge waves of immigration into the United States in the late 1800s, and early 1900s. You know, the old signs, Irish need not apply, you know, suspicions when John F. Kennedy was running for president, uh, a Catholic in the White House might be under the control of the Pope in Rome, right? So even on a religious thing among white people, Protestants versus Catholics. So it's not unique to racial things, right? But you can have these kinds of discussions in, in theoretical constructs, you know, in academic settings, and then there is this friction about how do we actually apply them and make them realities in the real world. So whereas we can never achieve perfection in reality, reality is also proof that all the worst attributes never fully manifest either, right? So my experience in the Marine Corps was, yes, there are different people, but it's amazing how people get past the superficial aspects, right, of skin color, for example, you know, or speech patterns or musical things and actually focus on what really matters and that's mutual respect, you know, it's mission accomplishment. It's I've got a brother or a sister, you know, in uniform uh, who needs some assistance and I'm there for them, right? Or you want to see them achieve, so I'm going to get that person that school slot, you know, or help them along their way in studying for the next exam for promotion or whatever that might be. So I think in a macro, a very large perspective, the United States in particular has, has enjoyed 30 years of peace and prosperity. I mean, the big scheme of things, you know, at the end of the Cold War, during that period, we were worried about, you know, thermonuclear war, and you had massive armies facing off in Europe between the Warsaw Pact and NATO and stuff. And the reality of what war might mean tended to focus people. But when all that went away, and we had the happy decade of the 1990s, and everybody's making money, and you can just get kind of loose, you know, and silly in your thinking, and we can come up with theoretical problems. But when you look at the real world, you know, truck drivers and postal carriers and store clerks and doctors and lawyers, uh, you know, who has ascended to the heights of the presidency? Who are major sports figures and, you know, entertainment figures and all those sorts of things? I just don't see where the evidence really supports the theoretical problems that critical race theory is espousing. 
right? And I think most people that I have talked to that are still in the military and have to go into these kind of training sessions, awareness sessions, they, they hear what's being proposed and then they look at the reality around them and there's this huge disconnect. And so I think that erodes the integrity and credibility of the system, that the government or these authorities are telling me something that doesn't resonate with my personal experience. That brings me to my my last question for you, and that's if do we know if these trainings are already happening in our military today? Yeah, in various ways. I mean, the Navy has really taken some hits. You know, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, has been taken the task by various members of Congress for this reading list. And all the services have reading lists. And the idea is, hey, these are uh, works, you know, literary works or books that uh, talk about various things, whether it's uh, military history or leadership techniques or whatever that might be. And we would recommend that you read these to gain uh, ex- you know, from the experiences of others you know, who have committed to paper. And it's, you know, it's a way to just uh, kind of broaden your own experience base, right? And some of these books on the Navy's reading list have really been perpetuating, you know, or they're about critical race theory. And so the the chief of naval operations, you know, was challenged. We do you believe in this? And there's some equivocation. Uh, we yes, we do have some problems with racial tensions or with male female, you know, relationships. Uh, you know, these sorts of bit. Well, you will always have those things. But does it constitute a service wide, endemic, systemic, you know, structured sort of prejudicial thing? And, and that just is not the case. So from reading lists to these training packages, a bunch of PowerPoint slides that have some of these points illustrated on them, and you'll have a moderator or somebody that facilitates discussion, and they are presenting this stuff to units, whether it's on ships or Air Force squadrons or Marine Corps you know, platoons and companies, headquarters units uh, stateside or field units that are abroad. They're being presented this sort of material. And what I'm hearing and my colleagues uh, outside of the military are hearing from you know, those uh, who continue to serve is that people leave these sessions just shaking their head and they're saying this just doesn't make any sense. And it's, it, it appears to be an intentional drive to create problems within the military that ultimately, if pursued, would degrade the performance and the effectiveness and the cohesion that you actually want in the military. And it just begs the question of why would somebody want to do this? And the only conclusion I can come to is it's a liberal progressive agenda where you have these, um, for lack of a better word, academics, you know, or activists that want to push a particular view of America and relationships between the races and and, uh, male and female genders and whatnot for whatever reason – uh, but they are they are imposing this, and and I, I guess you know I think a very important point that people don't perhaps fully appreciate is is the military is wonderful because it receives orders and it executes those orders. We don't want a U.S. military that is in opposition to civilian authority. I mean, can you imagine that? I didn't like that order, so I'm not going to follow it. We don't want that world. So the military, if they receive a lawful order. And however stupid it might be, if it's not illegal, they're going to try to implement it as best they can. So where uh, a president's administration, like the Biden administration today, has political appointees imposing these things, right, in, in lawful positions, or if they direct the uniform military to do these things, it's not really 
um, within the purview of the military to say, no, we're not going to do that. And you know, they're going to try to carry these things out as best they can. So um, if the military in some ways cannot speak for itself, I think it's incumbent upon those outside the military, uh, like us, like the, you know, the, the, the general American public, to say this isn't right and this is injurious. You know, veterans can speak from their own experiences uh, across the decades about how disastrous this might be and what the effect could have been on their own units when they served. And this popular you know, pushback uh, will influence their elected officials. And I think that's probably the most effective way to combat this. Dakota Wood, thank you so much yeah. for talking with us on this difficult topic. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of Heritage Explains. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by John Pop.